Okay, so like I said earlier, we've started kind of our Advent season, and we're starting our Advent series today. Each year, we take time to celebrate Advent. This is something a lot of churches do. They say it's in the church calendar, in a sense, where we take time every year to celebrate Advent. If you're newer to church, you might not know what Advent means. Advent actually kind of means what the the word itself means. The word itself means the celebration, like the uh, of the arrival, really, of a notable person, thing, or event. That's what Advent means. And so in church, when we celebrate Advent, we're celebrating the arrival of God in the flesh. That's what we do each Advent season. And so what we do in Advent is we're looking back to what God has done, and we're looking forward to what God will do, and we're thinking about those things, we're reflecting on those things, and we're letting those things shape us into deeper worship of God, deeper thankfulness of God. But also in the Advent season, we've done different things where we look at different components of the Advent story and see how it helps us to long and hope for Jesus to return again one day. And so each year we look for different ways to celebrate Advent. I like how Pastor Duke Kwan puts it, that his quote is going to be on the screen. He says this about Advent. He says, Advent is not four weeks of Christmas. It is rather a season of hopeful aching and watchful waiting amidst the very conditions, depravity, disease, division, despair, death, that made Christmas necessary at all. And so each year we look to do that and to do more than that with each Advent season. It is something important for us to do as people, as the people of God, to remember God, to remember what he's done and what he is going to do. And so we're doing that this Advent season by do, by participating in this series that Redemption Tempe is also doing called Welcoming the King. Welcoming the King. And the idea of the series is that we would welcome Jesus the King more deeply into our lives. Okay? So how you introduce somebody, it's, it's significant. Like the details you use to introduce someone to someone else or to talk about someone to someone else, they are all play key factors in who that person is, or at least how you, who you see that person to be. I have this friend. He's one of my best friends in the world. His name's Jordan Garcia. And he is a character, okay? If he was in the TV show, like, he would be everybody's favorite character. He's like that kind of a guy. He's just, he's a quirky, fun, awesome guy. And so a lot of times people are like, tell me more about Jordan. Tell me who he is. And there's always three things I love to say about Jordan. The first is this. And these three things, I think, capture the essence of Jordan in certain ways. The first thing is this. I love to tell this to people mostly because it gets him mad. But I go, on his back, there, are, there is a tattoo of four beautiful horses. Just a large tattoo on his back of four of the most beautiful horses I've ever seen. He's not a horse guy. I've never seen him on a horse. So I don't know what that's about. I've asked him about it and he goes it represents the four horsemen of the apocalypse I'm like what that doesn't there's no men on them like there's just it's just horses buddy like what's going I don't I think he just messes with people I think he just is really into horses and 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 doesn't want to admit to it and so I love to tell people that he's got huge four he he gets so mad that I tell so many people and now I've publicly told all of you and so uh, I'm not sorry Jordan if you hear this Um, the second thing I love to tell about Jordan is 
he uses these like phrases, he makes up slang. He's, he's not like jumping into people's like normal use of slang. He just makes up phrases like every year that he's like, these are the words I'm using and this is what they mean. And he doesn't tell anybody about it unless they ask like, what, what are you saying, right? And so I asked him last week, I said, hey, what's some of the slang you're using right now? What are some of your catchphrases you're using right now? So he's been saying slam dunk a lot or slammed. And he said, so I'll say like, he'll say like, I slammed that email. And I'm like, what? what? He goes, it just means like I wrote a really good email. <laughs> like, so he just says, the other thing he does that I think is hilarious is he says, God bless. Right, lately, this is the thing he's telling me. But he says it when people tell them about hardships in their life. <laughs> he's a teacher. And so the example he gave me uh, is a student will come to him. It's kind of like a self-directed classroom. A student will come to him and be like, man, this is really hard. How, how am I going to solve this, Mr. Jordan? I don't know what they call him. And he goes, hey, God bless. <laughs> like, God bless. And so, so sometimes Jordan rubs people the wrong way because he says things like that. And I love it about Jordan. And he's actually like, that's actually a pretty uh, faithful witness to the word. Anyways, but uh, the third thing I love to tell about Jordan, the third thing I love to tell about Jordan is I don't know if I know anyone. I, and I'm serious. I don't know if I know anyone in the world that people feel more loved by him. I, was at, I, was, I had the honor to be in his wedding. And the people that were there were some of the most vulnerable people. They were some of some really great people too. But the common thread they all felt, at least on the groom's side, was how deeply loved they felt by Jordan. Each of them had this story about Jordan and how he just deeply, deeply loved them. And so I love to tell people these things about Jordan because when you meet a guy with horses on his back, you don't expect some of those other things. But it's true. That's who, that's who Jordan is. Now, what we're going to see in this series of welcoming the king is that each of the gospels tells their own Advent story. And here's what I mean. They tell the story of God coming in the flesh. They do it in different ways. Really, only Matthew and Luke do it in a very specific sense. But they each tell the story of Advent, of God's arrival on this planet in the flesh. And the, the details that they use, the ways they talk about Jesus, the way that they introduce Jesus to us is significant. They're not just telling us details for the sake of telling us details. They're telling us details so that we know who King Jesus is. And so this Advent season, we're going to look at three of the Gospels and how they introduce Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew, we're going to look at Luke, and we're going to look at Mark. And we're going to see how do they introduce us to Jesus and how does that help us to welcome the king into our life. So that's what we're going to be doing. Today, we're going to be in Matthew, okay? And so I'm going to give you a little look at what today is going to look like. Uh, we're going to be in the genealogy of Matthew. The first thing that we're going to do after we, we read some of the genealogy is we're just going to learn a bit about genealogies and Jew, Jewish genealogies in, in particular. And then we're going to hone in for a few minutes on some of the most scandalous parts of this genealogy. Here's the, here's the reality. Matthew's genealogy can teach us a lot of things about Jesus and who he is, but it does seem that in particular, Matthew wants to mark some of these scandalous things in order to introduce us to our king. 
And so we're going to hone in on that. And then from that, we're going to, there's going to be three things I think Matthew's teaching us specifically about Jesus by pointing out these scandals. Okay, does that make sense? So let's prepare to welcome the king more deeply into our lives. Some of you might be going, I've already welcomed the king in my life. And and here's the thing about our relationship with God. You cannot ever stop welcoming him him more and more into your life. There are so many parts. Guys, sometimes I say stuff like this and we get in fights about it. Like, I've already done that, Anthony. Well, guess what? You're going to do it again. Like, that, that's just the reality. Like, there are parts of your heart that are sub, not submitted to the kingship of Christ. How prideful is it in me when I think I don't need to welcome the king more deeply into my life? We all need to welcome the king more deeply into our lives. And the way we're going to do that today is by looking at Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. We could really do a whole series on Matthew's genealogy, but that feels mean, so I won't do that to you guys. So uh, let's go to Matthew chapter one. I'm not gonna read the whole genealogy to spare you. You know, I gotta give you guys baby steps with genealogies. And so what I am gonna read is I'm gonna read verses one through six of the genealogy, and then I'm gonna read verses 16 and 17, and then we'll talk about the genealogy, okay? So read with me. It will be on the screen as well. It says this in verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nishon, and Nishon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Verse 16, let's hop down. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, so a few things about Jewish genealogies. The first is this. this was, Jewish genealogies are really important to the Jewish people. They're a huge part of God's word, but they also were used vastly by Jewish people outside of God's word. Part of that was because this was how they established rights. This was how they established their inheritance. This is how they established what tribe that they could make a claim to belonging to. And so Jewish genealogies were very, very important to the Jewish people. It it kind of helped them uh, say what their legitimacy was as a Jewish person. But the Jewish genealogies were a bit more than that as well. They weren't just lists of names to make sure you had rights. They were also kind of seen as stories. Jewish Jewish genealogies, as you read them, you're supposed to 
hear the names being said and remember, especially the biblical Jewish genealogies, and go, oh, I remember that person did that, and God did that in that person's life. These stories are what's supposed to come to mind, and that's what Matthew is trying to do. Part of why we know that that's what Matthew is trying to do here is because the word that he uses for genealogy right there in the Greek is the same word that they were using in the Greek Old Testament in the first century, which is called the Septuagint, that is used for the book of Genesis. It's the same word. Now, I don't know if you've read the book of Genesis. There's a lot of stuff in there and only a few genealogies. There's a lot of stories in there. True stories about how God created the world. And not only that, this word is used a couple times in Genesis as well. And one of the times is uh, just a normal genealogy, kind of like this. But one of the other times is right at the beginning of how the creation story is told in Genesis chapter 2. And so this word genealogy, it doesn't just mean, hey, lists of names the way that Matthew's using it. Now, that is how he's using it, but he also, I think, wants to craft a story for us. He wants us to think of the history of God's people and God's people's connection in their lineage to Jesus. So there's a lot of uh, weird things about Matthew's genealogy that helps show us that he, he was being very intentional. First, one of the things that's weird is a lot of names are omitted from the genealogy. Some would say, no, that they're not omitted. You're just not looking at it right. But, but a lot of the names are omitted. And right away when that happens in the Bible, we go, well, the Bible's not real, or this part of the Bible's not real, or God's not really speaking through Matthew, blah, 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 blah. Like, that's, that's our reaction. But what we have to know, too, again, that word was the father of. It was a Greek word that really could mean, uh, it doesn't really even require immediate relationship. It just means like in the lineage of, it could mean. It could mean like uh, something like was the ancestor of. And knowing that, we have to realize, okay, Matthew is being very unusual with this genealogy then. He's omitting names. He's putting certain names to, to say certain Things to us. So here's another unusual thing that, uh, that Matthew did. Uh, it was very unco- un- uncommon to include women's names in genealogies. It was very uncommon. And so Matthew mentions at four different times the father and the wife. He seems to go out of his way to mention some of these women who are part of Jesus's lineage. Matthew is bucking the trend of genealogy and it's to help us welcome our king. It's to introduce us to who Jesus is. Just like earlier you're going, Anthony, it's weird that you're telling us your friend has horses on his back. I promise you that helps you understand who he is though. And Matthew is doing something unusual here And he's bucking the normal trends of genealogies. He's including women. And he's not just including women. He's including all kinds of scandalous stories throughout this genealogy. If you go back and read what they were known for in their time, in their place, that we can see in God's word in the Old Testament. Matthew's not doing this by accident. He's doing it so intentionally. You can see he's doing it so intentionally because he goes 14, 14, 14. 
He's trying to say, hey, this is it. This is, the, this is important. This is complete. Like, this is it. He's not trying to say, hey, he didn't omit names or anything like that. Like, Matthew is being very, very intentional about what he's saying in this genealogy. And so here's what I want us to do. We're going to focus in on four of those five women. We're not going to talk about Mary too much. We talked a lot about Mary last year. And so we're going to talk about the other four women that... Matthew mentions and goes out of his way to mention in his genealogy. And I think that these four women that Matthew mentions helps us to understand who Jesus is. It sounds strange, but it's true. That is what I believe Matthew to be doing here. And so but we're going to take a few minutes. I'm going to retell these four women's stories. I'm going to just sum it up, each of the four women, quickly uh, so that when I get into what Matthew's trying to teach us from this genealogy, it will make more sense, okay? Plus, I know none of us get enough Old Testament in us, right? Because right away, if we read our Old Testaments a lot, the first woman's name, you would have went, ooh, Matthew, what are you doing there? Okay, and so I'm going to briefly... describe each of the four women and what we know of their story from the Bible, how the Bible talks about these women in the Old Testament, okay? So the first story, the first woman he mentions is Tamar, okay? Uh, Cover your kids' ears. Um, I'm not going to tell all the details of the story because I feel uncomfortable even on a Sunday telling all the details of Genesis chapter 38 where you'll find Tamar's story. So Tamar's situation is this. She was married to one of Judah's sons. So Judah is her father-in-law. That son dies. And in that culture, in that time and place, that family, Judah, was called to make sure she got a son. Because if she didn't get a son, she's destitute. Right? They didn't have retirement plans in ancient Israel. Okay, guys? Like that, there wasn't like, is it social security? I don't know how things work. They didn't have social security like, you, you, it would just be like, when you couldn't work anymore, you're probably going to die soon. And so having a child, having a son, gave you future and, a, and hope that you aren't just going to, you know, have to drop dead as soon as you can't work anymore. And so Judah was called. It was his responsibility to make sure that she had a son. And what, what they would do is one of the brothers would help her with that endeavor. Now, what ended up happening is the first brother in line, Onan, he just didn't care. He just used her. He just used her for his own gratification. He did not help her to get a son. Next brother, somewhat of the same. He just didn't, he didn't, I think he just didn't want to. So Judah says to her, and most commentators would say he, he was uh, passing the buck, so to speak. He was, he was being lazy in some sense. He goes, hey, uh, Tamar, just, just go back to your, your father's house. We'll figure it out. Something will happen. So Tamar, in her desperation, she takes matters into her own hands. And I promise you, if you read this story in Genesis chapter 38, you're going to be uncomfortable with the details. But what she does is she dresses herself up as a prostitute. And she knows a place that Judah, her father-in-law, frequents. And he uses her as a prostitute. And she gets pregnant. And three months later, she's going to get in trouble for getting pregnant out of wedlock. And she goes, well, guess whose baby it is? Because she had some of his things that he had left with her. And he has a moment of, I think, somewhat a moment of clarity, realizing that he had sinned 
grievously against her. She's Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandma. And Matthew doesn't want us to forget that. What are you doing, Matthew? All right, next, Rahab. I love Rahab. Rahab's one of my favorite people in the Bible. Rahab is a Canaanite woman, so a non-Jewish woman, who is also a prostitute. And she's living in Jericho, as God has said to his people after 40 years of wandering in the desert, okay, go take this land. And so Jericho is this kind of little military outpost city, and it's the first city that Israel, that God is going to kind of conquer for Israel. And so they send spies in, and Rahab talks to the spies who could very well get tra- like killed and trapped and whatever, but she goes, listen, I've heard about your God. I've heard what he did in Egypt, and I believe that he's, he's a God unlike any other God. She essentially kind of says, like, I think he's the creator God. This is a crazy claim for someone to make based on rumors of things that happened 40 years ago. She's a faithful woman. And so she says, listen, because I believe all that, could you guys not take us out, take my family out, take me out? And they go, sure, this, this is how we, uh, th- th- that will work. Just tie a little scarlet cord to your window, it'll work out. And so Rahab, who's not Jewish, is in the lineage of Jesus. Matthew, what are you doing? On to Ruth. Ruth is another great story. We love the story of Ruth. I think most people go, I love, I love the story of Ruth. And I go, why don't you name your kid that then? Um, but the story of Ruth, it's such a, it, it, it's a beautiful story of this Moabite woman. Hear me again. A non-Jewish woman who marries a Jewish guy. The Jewish guy dies and her mother-in-law essentially says, hey, you, she had two daughter-in-laws, both husbands died, and she says, hey, you, you can go. One of them goes, and Ruth famously says, where you go, I'll go. And so they go back to Israel, and they begin to live on Israel's welfare system where you could glean anything that they dropped, anything that the harvesters dropped. They weren't supposed to pick back up so that the poor could come in and glean their food and pick up food for themselves. And so they're living on that system. And in the midst of that, Ruth's mother-in-law hatches a plan of how this distant relative can be a kinsman redeemer for her, who can help provide a son, help be a husband even. And so she hatches this plan, and and it goes according to plan. And he redeems them from despair and death and poverty. That's the story of Ruth. Now, The next way that Matthew is scandalous in his genealogy is he talks about King David. King David, who is to be revered. King David, whose son one day, not his actual son, but someone in his lineage, was supposed to be this Messiah, was supposed to be this Christ. Someone very honored, not only in their their society, but in their religion. And Matthew, he makes a clear dig at David. Because when he talks about David and the son that begat the son that that begat the son that connected to Jesus, he says he, David, got that son through the wife of Uriah. 
Listen, he's not trying to uh, sweep under the rug Bathsheba's name. He's trying to make a dig at David because guess what? All of Israel knew that story, just like all of us know that story. While also honor Uriah. He's saying David did this sin that caused this son to be in his line, but she was really Uriah's husband. If you don't know the story, David sees a woman bathing naked and he invites her into the palace where I believe he used his power probably to coerce her into having sex with him. She gets pregnant. David wants to cover it up, so he sends Uriah to the front lines where he's killed. And Matthew, all these years later, doesn't want Israel to forget that. And he wants to honor Uriah. Another interesting thing about Uriah, Uriah wasn't a true full-blooded Israelite either. Matthew is not avoiding any of the scandal in this genealogy. Listen, back then when you're writing a genealogy, you're putting all the names like this guy did this really great thing and then he had this son that did this. Really, you're, you're all, I, I believe that often they would even kind of ignore the names or try to find ways to omit the names that brought shame upon their lineage. And yet Matthew wants to say all those things that bring shame, all those scandals, all those flat out sinful stories are in the lineage of Jesus. I mean, two, two of the women for sure were Gentiles. One was probably a Gentile. And one was probably regarded as a Gentile because her husband was a Gentile. They all come from incredibly broken situations. Matthew is not accidentally putting these names. He is intentionally putting these names in this genealogy, not to be scandalous for the sake of being scandalous, but to teach us something about Jesus, to introduce us to our king, to help welcome us to our king. Because he wants us to know the sort of king that we have. So what is Matthew trying to teach us? I think there's a lot of things, but we're going to talk about three. The first is this. Jesus has come for the world. Okay, listen. Jesus has come for the world. God in the flesh has come for the world. Remember, his name was Emmanuel, God with us. Let's not forget, Jesus is God. Jesus has come for the world. Why do I say that? Because of what I just said a, few, a, few, a couple minutes ago. All of these women had some sort of Gentile roots or Gentile connotations with their life. And Matthew goes out of his way to mention them. He wants us to know what God has always said, even in the Old Testament, which I know a lot of us don't like, and I think it's just because we're not reading it enough, where he made Israel for the sake of the world, so that all the world might witness and know him. And so Jesus came for the world. Israel failed in that calling to be a beacon and a light to the world. Jesus would not. Jesus came for the world. Why do I think this is important? I feel like I talk about it all the time. And, I, and here's why I talk about it all the time. Because we need to know that our king did not come for just one type of person. Our king did not just come for one uh, moment in history. 
Our king did not just come for one country. Jesus is king over all. Jesus is king over the world. And I think too often Christianity gets this reputation that, you know, Christianity, Jesus, they're, they're really only for like one kind of a person. In one area of the country or one way of doing things. And here's the thing. Some of that's put on us inappropriately and wrongly. But some of that we bring on ourselves. Think how often we live out this faith in a way that says only people like me can be here. Too often. I'm not trying to call us out. I'm not trying to point all these things out. But it is just true. And we cannot welcome King Jesus fully and deeply into our lives if we don't see what Matthew saw. And that's that Jesus came for the world. Not just one kind of person, not just one type of person, not just one sort of person. He came for anybody and everybody that puts their faith in him. All nations, tribes, and tongues. That is a huge theme of the Bible. Jesus came for the world. And so I, I, I don't want to avoid that. I think sometimes it feels like in America, if I'm honest, it feels like we forgot we're Gentiles. <laughs> Like sometimes like there's this talk like we're, we're Jewish. We're not. We are Gentiles that have been grafted into God's people. This is good news when Matthew points all these things out. Jesus has come for the world. That's the first thing Matthew's genealogy teaches us. The second thing is this. The scandals, the broken and the sinfulness of the genealogy kind of have a twofold thing that, that, that God is teaching us. The first is this. God does not want us to ignore our sin. But also, God is not afraid of our sin. That's what this genealogy teaches us. That God, and this is another huge theme in the Bible, that we're sinners, that we have missed the mark, that we can't get to heaven no matter how good we think we are, that we can't get to God without dying before him because of our sin. That is a huge message throughout the whole Bible. And Matthew wants to say, hey, God wants us to remember that, but he also wants us to know this about our king. He's not scared of your sin. He's not scared of the sin that's in his lineage. In fact, he's going to just put it right out there in front of everybody. How confident is God? That's something I've been noticing about Jesus over this last year or so. Uh, John Horry, who, who kind of did a, a conversation with us on one of the COVID Sundays, he, pointed that, he, he said that to me at one point. He said, Jesus is just so confident, like in a good way. Like people are saying, you shouldn't say this or you shouldn't say this. Go, I'm going to say this because that's what's true. Jesus is so confident, and the sinful, sinful things in his lineage don't scare him. Do you know why they don't scare him? Because Jesus is bigger than sin. Jesus is more powerful than sin. That's what our King Jesus has come to do. He has come to defeat sin, and he's not some mere mortal like me or you. He is beyond that, and he is bigger than sin. And so he lays out all the sinful things in his lineage because he goes, I'm bigger than all that. I can overcome all that. I can redeem all that. 
That's the sort of king that we have. A king who's not afraid of sin. He doesn't like sin. Even in a moment in the garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't want to experience the effects of sin, but he still knows he's bigger and better and stronger than sin. That's the sort of king we have. Why is that important for us to welcome the king? Because if too many of us are in here living with an immense amount of shame because of our sin, we are minimizing our king's power. We are minimizing how much bigger he is than sin. Jesus is king over sin. He wants us to remember that we're sinful. That helps us to see our need for him. But he also wants us to know he's the sort of king who goes, I'm not scared of it. I can take care of it. I can redeem it. I can restore you. That's the sort of king we have. That's who Jesus is. The third thing that this genealogy teaches us about Jesus is this. Jesus, in his very lineage, he finds himself in the midst of many broken and vulnerable people. And Matthew is pointing that out time and time again, right? And this this is what we see about him when he's king as well, when he's walking the earth, is he purposely puts himself in the midst of broken and vulnerable people. It's in his lineage, and then it's what he does. I'd be hard-pressed to think that Matthew wasn't making that connection for us. There are broken, vulnerable people throughout his lineage, and then Jesus puts himself constantly around broken and vulnerable people, so much so that the disciples he chooses, you could describe a lot of them in those ways. Look at how broken and vulnerable and sinned against they are. Look how their own sin has caused them to be broken and vulnerable. These are the people that Jesus puts himself around. This idea has almost become like a controversial idea in the church, and I don't get it. Study Mary Magdalene. Look at what the word says about who she is. One of the most broken and vulnerable, and I think sinned against people. And you know what? She was the first witness to the resurrection. First proclaimer of the resurrection. Jesus puts himself in the midst of the broken and the vulnerable. That's who our king is. And so if we don't realize that about our king... And if we don't welcome that part of our king into our lives, this is what's going to happen. Jesus is going to be here and now around the broken and the vulnerable through his spirit, through his people, and we won't be willing to follow him there. I don't know about you. The way I read this word, the way I read the gospels is where Jesus goes, we go. Where... I will follow Jesus wherever he goes. And when it comes to the broken and vulnerable, to which he often goes, or which they often flock to him because of his immense love of the broken and vulnerable, it seems like that's a place in our lives where we sometimes don't quite welcome Jesus. It seems like that's a place where we don't quite want to go. 
we got a few excuses. One, one excuse I hear a lot when, there are, when there's someone who is loving the broken and vulnerable in a healthy, good way, because there are ways we can love the broken and vulnerable that's not good for them and not good for you. But often when someone is loving them correctly and well and wisely and sacrificially, and someone around them sees that, another Christian, they feel convicted and they go, oh man, I, I'm not, I, 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 when I'm with that person, it's really hard for me, so I don't know if I wanna be with that person. And so what they say out loud is, well, that person's compassionate. That person's a super Christian, right? They've got just this gifting of compassion. Now, I'm, I'm talking a little bit, obviously, a lot of you call me compassionate. I don't think I am. Here's what I am. I'm obedient. If you knew what was in my heart, you'd be like, Anthony ain't compassionate. You'd be like, yeah, I don't know about Anthony. But do you know, do you know what I am? I'm obedient. And I'm not trying to say, look how good I am. I'm very disobedient often. But I want to follow my king to where he goes. And he puts himself around the vulnerable and the broken. We shouldn't make excuses why we can't be around the vulnerable and broken. Yes, use wisdom. But I'm kind of tired of this excuse that's been going around. Oh, they're compassionate. They're super, you know, like they're kind of like a super. No. They're following Jesus, their king. And so I don't know. I, I think if unless we're willing to follow Jesus into those places, there is a part of our lives and a part of this world where we're not welcoming Jesus into our life. I just think that's true. Matthew teaches us all that and more about our King Jesus. We'd be silly not to realize how all of those things are us, too. We'd be silly not to realize how the gospel, the good news that the king has come, don't connect to what God has done for all of us in here. Right? Jesus came in the world to save you. Sorry, Lucas, for pointing at you specifically. <laughs> he came into the world to save all of you. You and I are so broken and so vulnerable that we can't beat sin on our own, so Jesus had to beat sin on the cross by dying for our sins. You can't die on the cross for your sins. You can't take care of your sin on your own. Knowing that not only helps us worship who our king is, but it should help us to follow him into some of those places where the broken and vulnerable are. Here's the other thing we can't do. You and I, because of sin and its effect on us, which causes everybody to die, 100% death rate in the world last time I checked, you can't resurrect yourself. That's why sin can feel so daunting, but Jesus our King goes, I have resurrection. I can resurrect, and I can give you resurrection. I can give you life. That's who Jesus is. The good news of the gospel is God came to earth, showed us his holiness, died a death on the cross for our sins and resurrected. And he offers that resurrection to us if we would just put faith in him. That's who our king is. And he's the sort of king that has come for the world. 
And he's the sort of king that wants us to remember that we're sinful and in need of him while also knowing he is not scared by any sin because he knows he's bigger than any sin. And he's the sort of king that walks into the broken and the vulnerable's lives often. And we have to ignore the Bible if we are not seeing that or parts of it. So church, this, this Advent season, I pray today, this week, that we would let Matthew's genealogy be more than just a list of names. That we would look for all the different ways that Matthew is trying to intentionally teach, teach us something about Jesus. Are you up for that, church? All right, let's try to do that this week. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for people far smarter than me that could help point out to me all these things about the genealogy that for so many years I just treated like a list of names. God, I thank you that there's even more in there that uh, I just couldn't get to today that we could all dive more deeply into and see what you're trying to speak about your son. Jesus, I truly ask this. Help us to welcome you more deeply into our lives. The good news of the gospel is you are already here in our lives. The good news about repentance is we've already welcomed you into our lives. But God, as a way of confession, I ask that we would repent again, not to be saved, but to welcome you more deeply in our lives. Because you have saved us once and for all. And for God, for those in the room that have never repented, I ask that you would do something in their heart that would cause them to repent and turn to you, to be saved, to have that resurrected life. Jesus, you are so good. Help us to see how broken and vulnerable we all are, how much we needed you to come into our lives and save us. Help us to not ignore our sin, but to realize how much bigger you are than our sin. Holy Spirit, be good to us, be kind to us, be merciful to us. Amen.